Welcome to Profound Black. Performing Black is a celebration of the work that pushes the culture forward and a conversation of the work that leaves us wanting more. Oh, damn. This podcast will make you laugh, but most importantly, it's going to make you think. Performing Black is a celebration of black people and black art. Love, of course. Welcome back. Yes, welcome back. It's so good to see you. You too. Happy 2021. We made it out of 2020, baby. Happy New Year. We made it. We are the chosen ones. Woo, because it was it was a trying time. Well, we still in a pandemic, so we might not be chosen. <laughs> <laughs> No, God, God's going to keep us. We're going to be all right. Yes. Uh, although I am in Los Angeles in the epicenter. So keep me lifted. I mean, you were in New York. That was another epicenter, too. And you made it through that. Listen, so how, who do I think I am going from one epicenter to the next? Right. Chosen. <laughs> <laughs> well, y'all, y'all know we used to be sipping, but now we are performing black. Uh, A.T., you want to give us some context to to what performing Black is and means? Yes, performing Black is a turn for us into a mere celebration of Black performance. So with Sippin', you know, we all got the pop culture influence in there, a lot of commentary on that. Uh, but now we are more focused on performance and, and theater and film and TV. So keep up and let's perform black absolutely we decided that with all the violence uh, of 2020 that it is really time to really sink down and, and 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 anchor into the foundation of who we are and we've already told you all that we both are artists and so we thought that for this podcast it was time to really focus on black performance black theater black television um, black film and so while we will have moments where we discuss you know black politics and we will have moments where we will talk about the craziness of pop culture um, this particular podcast will be an in-depth analysis and critique of film performance, stage performance, and television production. So I'm really excited. I am too. It's definitely a new leaf with the new year, and we're bringing that energy. I'm definitely excited, um, and I'm ready for the conversations that this is going to lead to. Yes, indeed. Um, as you all know, today we will be discussing what I will already call the iconic film, Sylvie's Love. But before we get into that, you know, we just talked about the craziness of 2020. 2021 has just started. Let's just think about what's happening with Black folk right now before we get into Sylvie's Love. Come on, A.T., what you got for us today? Thank you. 
So first up, uh, Jacob Blake's assailants, the police that killed and shot him in the Wendy's parking lot, um, have not been charged. Um, no, n- nothing has been filed against they them. They won't be won't charged, be, right? right? As we know, um, as we see over and over again, it, it won't happen. Yeah, you know, it really is a crying shame that, you know, this man potentially could have lost his life. You know, he was, he was, he was, wasn't he in a coma for several days? Yep. You know, and, 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 and was in the hospital for quite some time. Um, is he able to walk? I know he was paralyzed. Um, that was the first reports. I haven't actually kept up. Right. So I don't know. I haven't either. I mean, you know, it's relevant, but, you know, it isn't important to the fact that someone (laughs) needs to be held accountable for this incident. Mm -hmm. There was no crime committed. And they thought he was brandishing a knife, right? It was not a situation where he should have ended up in the hospital for any reason, you know. And as we know, this is an ongoing issue in this country. Um, And it just really, really is sad. And of course, simultaneously, you know, during this time, it was also stated that the cops that killed or or some of the cops, yeah, the cops that killed Breonna uh, Taylor, I think two of them were fired, I believe, but no one no still been has been convicted, you know, uh, or charged for this heinous crime that was, you know, committed against this woman who lost her life. So, you know, we're still in the struggle. We're still deep in it, and we have had this insurgence happen at the White House with these proud boys and gals running amok, looking crazy, with bare fur on and shit, climbing walls, <laughs> pointing guns. You know, you got the lady on her knees. Did you see the clip of the, of the of the, well, you can't hardly see it, but you hear her, the black congresswoman praying about to talk in tongues. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. I didn't see that one. We'll play it now. So, yes, this woman is praying hard while you see the officer go down. And I'm like, is he kneeling in prayer? Is he trying to slide up under the banister so he can get, you know, the proud boy? What is happening? We are in trouble. It's just, it's wild to me because, I mean, from the jump, we all knew that it was an inside job. Um, And just now, this week, there are news reports, you know, coming out that certain Congress members were working with these people to show them, you know, where all the rooms were, how the building was laid out. Apparently, there was a tour done the day before the incident where Congress members were showing some of these leaders of this riot um, around the building and, you know, showing them how they could maneuver around and navigate it uh, and find what they needed to. Um, And the police officers at the Capitol as well were working with them. Um, The deputy chief, I believe, he was let go and replaced with a black woman. He's a white man who was replaced with a black woman to clean up the mess um, after he conspired with them. So that's all just so interesting. Shout out to black women for always cleaning up our mess. They shouldn't have to. I think that we need to be thinking about more radical ways to seek our liberation and freedom. Burn that constitution, baby. Correct. We can write a new one. Right. Like, there's no rule saying we can't, y'all. 
<laughs> I will say I uh, want to correct something real quick. I misspoke earlier. Um, I was referring to uh, Rayshard Brooks instead of Jacob Blake at the first at the top of the story. Um, Rayshard, of course, was the one who was shot in the Wendy's parking lot. Not Jacob. Jacob did brandish, apparently or allegedly brandished a knife um, in the neighborhood, and the cops decided to shoot him. <laughs> You got your stimulus check? Oh, I don't get a stimulus check because I'm a dependent. Or I was claimed as a dependent. Oh, go to your mom. Go to my mom. She don't even get one for me because I'm not under 17. Oh, that's awful. I'm so sorry to hear that. I mean, I haven't gotten mine. Let's not even get into it. It's so sad. I can't get mine until I file my taxes this year. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm so over it. And it seems like in that process, I probably won't get it to the damn summertime. So, <laughs> but y'all, I'm all right. I'm not on living on the street. Amen. So I'm thankful for that. Um, as you all see, we are still giving Gen Z and Millennial vibes <laughs> on this podcast because uh, this little boy talking about he's somebody's dependent. dependent. Yep. I'm only 23. <laughs> so Kim and Kanye might be nearing a divorce. How do you feel about that? I don't feel about that. Um, Neither do I. Let's know. move forward. <laughs> <laughs> And other news, Clubhouse is on the rise. Black people have congregated to this app. Black people amongst others, but mostly black people. And it has been quite a time, I must admit, listening to some of these audition rooms, some of the conversations surrounding queerness and just black life have been very entertaining to me. Laugh yoga, millionaire bullies, Live musicals, celebrities, and a queer dating show. Clubhouse is blowing my fucking mind. <laughs> so that's the, the beginning of my essay that I'm writing. So I actually am so fascinated by Clubhouse that I'm writing this essay entitled Come Into the Shade Room, Clubhouse <laughs> and Queer Potentiality. I do know that this space has the potential um, for healing and liberation for black queer folk um and so the article basically is just you know kind of um ruminating on technology and this journey of um online socialization also kind of you know reclaiming the shade room and making this comparison to you know the shade room that's on ig and how that is a site of appropriation there are so many spaces you know you can have intellectual conversations you can have ratchet conversations <laughs> you can shoot your shot on a damn dating show that dating show blew my mind oh i need to hop on that I was driving, uh, I'm in, you know, Los Angeles right now, um, just kicking it because we're in a <laughs> pandemic. <laughs> more escape. I was driving to Riverside from North Hollywood and that was about, and there was little traffic, so it was about, it was about an hour, 20 minutes. And I listened to this game show the entire way there because I was like, this is crazy. This is insane. I do think there was a, a little bit of a love in hip hop. I think there was a little bit of reality TV because people were like, yeah, you know, we already talking. So I was like, okay, y'all that got in the DMs and said, come in the room and let's like get this thing going but I didn't care because I was like even if it is reality TV it's a full show on Clubhouse it was crazy but these two individuals uh, and they were British they called 
the other individual onto the stage. They were like, you know, we're, we're friends. I didn't know you saw me like that. And Ooh. then they said, I actually think we would be great together. And then they went on off into the sunset. Oh, it was my. wild. Now that <laughs> it do, was wild. That do sound produced. You think so? Yes, just hearing that. <laughs> For me, Clubhouse has been entertaining listening to the Dreamgirls auditions. You lie, you lie, that's a lie. <laughs> there were a lot of people who learned that they couldn't actually sing. I think there were quite a few people whose, you know, mama or auntie had told them that they had it. And um, the panel quickly told them, thank you, and happy new year. And they were then booted off. <laughs> but I, I so, oh, sorry, go ahead. Also, the the way the energy shifted in that room once figures such as uh, Cheryl Lee Ralph entered art space amongst Black people sometimes, um, her demeanor and commentary in the room was very much geared toward looking for kind of Broadway talent. And what came on the platform was community theater. It seemed that the panelists were looking for different things, those who started the room and Miss Cheryl, and that created quite an interesting tension in the room that wasn't there at the outset. I don't know if I would describe Shirley Ralph's demeanor as elitist. I think that she was commanding um, a time and space to honor history and the professionalism of theater and take up space for the what is original mm -hmm. you know and I think even in terms of com community theater I mean like they have done grand searches for when they did The Color Purple they acted as if uh, on Broadway when they first did they acted as if they could not find black talent so they had to go all over the place and so people <laughs> you know in those instances anybody can come into the audition space so yeah. to me it, it just was like this old this you know old version you know, of, you know, the all call to come see all of God's children, you know, whatever. They did that with the ones on this island as well. Right, exactly. And they do that. They act as if, you know, it's so challenging to cast Black people. And I'm like, no, the problem is not that there's a challenge to cast Black people. The problem is you don't know how to cast Black people. And you'd be casting people who don't need to be on the stage. Mm Um, but, you know, it is what it is. I thought what was particularly interesting was when Shirley Murdoch came in there sounding a damn mess. Yo. <laughs> and then Shirley Ralph came in there trying to critique everybody's audition. Yes. And I'm like, girl, don't you see it's 3,000 people in the room? Right. We don't have time for you to comment after each and every one. Go back to Congress with your congressman <laughs> husband. And then Cheryl say, no, no, no. At one point, after somebody saying, See, y'all listened. You listened intently. I was looking around at everybody like, why are y'all making me listen to this? I don't want to be part of this moment. <laughs> anyway, let's get, let, let me move on, because I feel like I'm getting mad, just like I was when I was listening to those damn auditions. <laughs> Coming up, we have the inauguration, um, which when this episode drops will have been yesterday. So, you know, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris 
will have been inaugurated um, while also impeachment trials have been filed for Trump. So this is quite a fascinating time. Well, I just, I just read that Mitch McConnell said he's not going to open up um, Senate for impeachment before mm. the inauguration. Interesting. So I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, but we, I guess only time will tell. Right. Uh, at first, I was like, you know, why are they wasting um, the time to do this, particularly when folk don't have their stimulus checks? You know, people are still out here hungry, yes. getting evicted, you know, and poor and don't have no money. I also learned that if he does not get impeached, he could run again. He does get all of these benefits that he yeah. does not deserve. And so that is why, you know, it is important for this to happen. But, you know, Pence said he's not going to call upon the 25th Amendment. Right. So it just kind of looks like, you know, we are stuck with this man etched in history. Earth certainly is ghetto. Earth is in love with earth is ghetto by miss um, Aaliyah sheffield um if you all haven't heard this little track this diddly bop that this woman created it's all over social media all you got to do is type in earth is ghetto and i was up in target just singing it up and down the aisles the other day everybody was looking at me like i was crazy <laughs> and i sang it louder <laughs> <laughs> I have not listened yet, but I know the internet and everybody is going crazy for hotels. I have not listened to it intently. I've had it on kind of as background music so far, but I will say my favorite track is definitely uh, On It with Ari Lennox. That's the one where they talk about Evan Head. Well, yes. Yeah, yeah. And spit. Yes. <laughs> and we're not. And we didn't name whose um, EP is it? An EP or is it an actual it's album? An EP. Right. So we're talking about Jasmine Sullivan, but Jasmine Sullivan has an EP out called Hotels. Hotels. But yeah, I also like Ari's. Ari's story is my favorite. Her hotel about <laughs> hooking up with a man that the internet um, is very adamant is a bad person, um, but she said, you know, the dick kept her. And uh, she was she was ready and willing to take it in spite of. Y'all really be getting digmatized. Y'all really like be getting stuck on the dick. Sylvie did too. She did, but she was in love. It wasn't just about no dick. She was in love. She was. Let's talk about it. Let's jump right into Sylvie's love. What a film. Sylvie's Love is so beautiful to me. It is a depiction of a simple black love story and black love existing in and of itself on its own outside of other social issues that often plague black people on film. And I think that um, provides just a, a fresh take on our lives on screen. And I really enjoyed it. Um, favorite performances were from Asia Naomi King, Tessa Thompson, uh, Tony Bell, uh, Reggae, um, John Page, and uh, Namdi Asamoga, of course. 
Charlie's name is Tone Bell with his oh, fine Tone. ass. Tone. Tone. Oh, he fine. He from Atlanta. Shout out to my hometown. He's fine. Interesting that you said you enjoyed his performance or you thought it was a standout performance. Uh, I wouldn't go that far, but he certainly <laughs> was nice to look at. But you know, you're right. You know, Eugene Ash, director, stated at Sundance that, you know, he was inspired to write this film because of looking at photos of his own family and how he noticed that this was a gap of story in storytelling. You know, we don't see Black folks of a particular class and um, station, as the mother says mm-hmm. in Sylvie's Love. Um, we don't see that um, captured, you know, and when we do see folk depicted during this time period, they are subservient uh, or in some sort of uh, adverse position. And he wanted to, you know, kind of change that narrative. Um, And he was very successful um, in his attempt. I, too, thought that the film was absolutely stunning. I thought that the performances were exquisite, Mm -hmm. you know, particularly uh, Asia, Naomi yes. King, oh A.P. David, and Tessa Thompson was brilliant. And Namdi Asamua, you know, he was great too. You know, and I don't know if y'all know that's Carrie Washington's husband. I didn't yep. know she had a husband. But I think that this was his film debut. And he was great too. Those, you know, were my three. And I thought that Reggae Jean Page was good too. What was crazy is that, you know, I haven't seen Bridgerton, but I was unable to make the connection that that was both of them because he looked totally different. Same. Mm -hmm. You know, he's clean shaven in this film. And I thought he also just kind of captured what a 1950s fuckboy might look like. (laughs) (laughs) So that was really, really cool. I think he did a really good job. And it's crazy because he's a British Zimbabwean actor, Mm -hmm. you know, and and I thought that he captured this Harlem boy quite well. Mm. I think it's interesting too, there's a connection between uh, Reggae and um, the dude who played Lacey, that Alano Miller and Reggae Jean Page were both in Underground and that they've appeared in this film together too. That's an interesting connection um, of them just telling black narratives. (laughs) This film uh, is a love story and the film opens up with her in front of the Town Hall Theater waiting for a Nancy Wilson concert um, in which she sees Robert and they were taken to this story uh, between these two individuals. They have this back and forth. Sylvia is actually engaged, waiting for her fiancé to come back to New York from the war. Robert, who is a young musician, ends up coming to work in Sylvia's father's record shop. They end up building this romance. Sylvia done got pregnant. (laughs) Tell her man, because she didn't want to ruin his career. And so then it's just all about the back and forth that happens after that. And then, of course, as always in romance film stories, they go off into the sunset. I'm glad you said that because that was the main thing that stuck out to me upon watching it, especially the second time, is that this film is very predictable um, and it kind of attaches itself to a form of kind of what a love story looks like of that period, um, which, you know, I I believe is purposeful. But at the same time, as a viewer, I was like, I know exactly what's coming next. She's going to get divorced from her fiance, Lacey, or then husband, uh, and then get with Robert. And they'll ride off into the sunset eventually. There may be some problems, bumps in the road, and there were, but 
you know, it, it all came to them living happily ever after. Absolutely. It was uh, falling in line with some sort of form or style, mm-hmm. and, and it was. The Golden Age, you know, which is a particular time in film history, they note that time to be from 1910 to 1960s, also known as Old Hollywood. And it's called the Golden Age because of the narrative and visual style. This is the emergence of the movie star. You have the grand ingenue and the grand leading man and them fighting for this love. They also referred to the golden age because this was a time Hollywood made lots of money. Because you see the emergence of MGM and the film studio and these Artur style of directing and these directors who create stylized film and they get to, and Artur means they stamp their style. You know, so like Spike Lee is an Artur director because he has a very specific style. Quentin Tarantino is an Artur director because he has a very specific style and create films in the style. That's why it's called The Golden Age. You know, this film falls in line with romance, romance films of that period, um, which most of the time were <laughs> just white couples uh, coming together. Um, and it was as if black people didn't exist on film at all. And kind of similar to what Sylvie is doing in the film, watching I Love Lucy um, on the TV in the record shop over and over, studying television. That is what most black people had to do. That is how they, you know, attach themselves to television during the period. And I think it's so important that Eugene Ash has inserted this film into that canon and placed black folk in the period uh, because of course we were alive during that time too and we did have love stories amongst our communities. We certainly did. To go back to the historical fact, you know, there were Black directors during that time, uh, and there, of course, were Black actors doing things. You have Oscar Micheaux, who was the first Black director. He produced 44 films, and, and Tyler Perry was not the first Black man to actually have a film studio. It was short-lived, but Oscar Micheaux also had a film studio, and it was called Lincoln Motion Picture Company. Some of his films include Within Our Gates, which many consider was a response to Birth of a Nation. You have all, you know, of the Black actors during that time. You've got Sidney Poitier, you've got Ethel Waters, you've got Hattie McDaniel, the first African-American to win an Oscar. You've got Pearl Bailey, who gives her iconic performance in, in Carmen Jones. You have Dorothy Dandridge and Hera Belafonte. In the film, Namdi Asamoa, he puts you in the mind of Hera Belafonte. And Hera Belafonte had an amazing career. He, you know, he's only one award um, shy of the EGOT. Uh, He has uh, a few Grammys. He has an Emmy and a Tony Award. So, you know, um, it really is for me, you know, it's nostalgic. You know, uh, I remember watching Carmen Jones when I was a little kid, and I remember being like, ooh, you know, um, I don't know what I said, but I remember being like, ooh. I remember the scene, you know, with Carmen Jones and that girl getting a fight in the cafeteria. You know, like, you know, it's just, it was nostalgia. I just wanted to give that history because although, you know, this particular narrative of Black love was 
absent from that time, we were there. And it is important to honor our history and the strides that were made for the actors that exist today. And I want to say, too, that it's interesting that this film was shot at Paramount Studios and Warner Brothers Studios as two of like the oldest studios in Los Angeles. And that history mm-hmm. is important, too, to, for this film to be placed on those locations. You know, we look forward to, to Tyler Perry's ascension uh, because, you know, regardless of how we feel about his work, it is such a milestone and such uh, a critical moment, you know, uh, for Black film that this now studio owned and run by a Black human um, exists today. And it's Mm -hmm. important. And, you know, for that alone, he should be celebrated. Definitely. I do want to talk about the costuming of of this piece. Um, particularly mm-hmm. Mona Lisa's costumes, the color palette that was used for her character is always uh, in the red, pink, or purple realm, and that color mm-hmm. that color scheme um, symbolizes sweetness and um, kind of this energy. And she's such a mm, sensual and but bubbly and flirtatious character and i think that was perfectly captured with that costuming and even her Mm -hmm. nails being painted red (laughs) she just pops on screen um immediately even when we first meet her she's mm, what asia does with that character she just she she really pops off the screen and she brings her to life in such a way that you're encapsulated by her performance. Yeah, costumes were done by Phoenix Mello. Um, I think that they did an amazing job, you know, in in capturing what a flirty woman might be like during that time. And and Asia Naomi King certainly stepped into that role um, with grace and style. And, you know, she was smiling so hard. Honey, we really (laughs) know you got you some new teeth. And we are so proud of you for that. Um... Yeah, you know, because she just was smiling a little too hard. I was, I, I was like, she must have gotten some veneers or something. She uh, just got, at the very least, she just did a really good whitening treatment, and she is ready to be seen. Here I mean, and I understand. <laughs> Hear me, yeah. exactly. Um, and I thought that Maine Burke did an amazing job with production design. You know, the settings were amazing. You know, even the specificity of the tassels mm. in uh, the restaurant scene where they're in the Asian restaurant. Sylvie and Robert, you know, meet back up and they go to dinner. Uh, I just, and they're standing in this restaurant with the dark, the dark colors and you see the tassels. I was just like, that is absolutely beautiful. Mm-hmm. What an eye to be that specific. It was really beautiful. And the music, you know, you're, you, we are being underscored by Nancy Wilson, Frankie uh, Lyman, Jack, Jackie Wilson, Sam Cooke, Sarah Vaughn. And the film at the end is dedicated to Diane, Nancy, and Doris. So I'm thinking Diane Carroll, Nancy Wilson, and Doris Day is what I'm thinking mm-hmm. in that. But, you know, it, it was just, you know, everything fell in line. You know, I, I, when I'm teaching acting and, 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 and trying to teach little AT, you know, I'm telling him all the time, specificity is so 
important. The details are so important in creating and crafting, you know, um, a film that is making a statement and and, and will be received positively and and will be received, you know, garnering conversation. It is those details. It is specificity. You can't be like, um, what's the damn film Tyler Perry did with the bad wigs and and you can see... Which one? There's so many. well, the last one, uh, the one that's on Netflix. Oh, fall from Grace. Fall from Grace, and you see the dummy person <laughs> fall off the building, and you see these bad wigs. Like, like, you know, and he prides himself on writing scripts in 25 minutes. Right. And you're like, no, baby. Like, it's, that, that is why your films are received. Because you send it in the draft. You know, not even like, yeah, not even the rough draft. You send it <laughs> in a draft. You know, because when you're a writer, you know, like I'm still, you know, developing myself as a writer, you know, but I am understanding that, you know, the seven drafts happen before you get to the final draft. In this particular case, there was really some specific work happening, um, you know, from the vocal production, you know, Mm. simply just, it's simply just, say, you know, and it's funny because when she said say, I was thinking about like the ways in which that particular phrase has, um, you know, kind of moved through history because I remember my big cousin, uh, Quentin, you know, everybody got their big cousin that they love. You know, he was kind of like the bad boy in the family, you know, <laughs> but everybody loved him. Not bad, but like, you know, you know, he was the one, you know, who was like out and chasing girls and things like that and was cute and fly. He used to be like, say, man, you know, and so like how say that particular language, you know, has changed, you know, and, and, and when, and you know, now my new phrase, when the mother was like, you know, a, a woman cannot be fraternizing with a man, I'm paraphrasing, beneath her station. station. Mm-hmm. Oh, these bitches beneath my station better back back. That's what I know. <laughs> I do want to make mention of, they did this thing with costuming too between uh, Robert and Sylvia's father, Eugene. The two of them are wearing the exact same cardigan at two different points in the film. And mm. there's this play between their two, the two characters. I think there's a commentary that Eugene was trying to, to make on the kind of similarities that they had in their upbringings um, and both existing as yeah. darker skinned black men uh, in this world that praises lighter skinned men like Lacey, who kind of have been given everything, who have, you know, the wealth and the parents who are doctors. And the two of them are very much like manual labor skilled men um, who love music and who are dating these light-skinned black women or married to and that connection is so it's so interesting uh, just to see play out in the ways that it's mentioned throughout the film you know i find that fascinating i didn't i didn't catch that um so go ahead a point for at <laughs> but what i did catch <laughs> but what i did catch was that you know it did seem like when the father decided to hire um robert it was intentional um I think now, now you're now you're making sense of it for me, At. Like it seems like he did see himself in mm-hmm. this dude. I think he had some kind of omniscient understanding of of what was transpiring between Sylvie and Robert in that moment yep. in the in this first meeting. I just thought that mo- moment with him looking in the window, you really 
saw love at first sight. Mm-hmm. And even her, when she looked the first time she sees him, yes. you know, she you see her awakening. Maybe not love at first sight, but she definitely, you know, is awakened to, you know, a particular interest. Yes. And I just thought that that was really beautiful, too. I'm glad you mentioned that moment because after that first meeting when Robert leaves the shop, this was the moment I knew Tessa was about to give us some specific performance because sis turned around and slid her hand in the back of her head and tapped that one pointer finger. And I was just like, wow, there's I got so much from that. Like, I understand exactly what she's going through right now, what she's feeling, how she's feeling after having just met this man the way she even perked up when she turned around and saw him that first time, it <laughs> it was beautiful. I mean, you know, and there's so many moments like that throughout the film. Yes. So, so many moments. Maybe we can talk about this film as a feminist piece. You know, mm-hmm. I think when we were having our preliminary conversations about this, A.T., you spoke about, you know, the female lead. Yes. So I want to hear what you might have to say about that. Yeah, it was interesting to me watching this film the first time. I didn't remember the names of the male characters, many of them, but I knew Sylvie and Mona. And I think that was intentional in it, in the writing. And I think it just came from the fact that you know, the, the film is named after Sylvie, um, but that she is the central character to this story. And it's about how she experiences this story and how she is influenced by her mother's thoughts toward who she is supposed to be in the world um, by interacting with her cousin Mona and how she exists as a woman and expresses her sexuality and her femininity. And um, yeah, I think the men were definitely kind of took a cursory position. And even, you know, um, Sylvie being hired by another Black woman in her job at the TV station, that in itself was all goes in tandem with this feminist theme. Glad you mentioned her occupation. Um, Before I get to that, I wonder if... To underscore what you stated, I also wonder if that was magnified by their electric performances, too. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Um, I do think that, you know, they take precedence and their presence in the narrative, you know, were definitely centered. But I also think that they gave just, they really, these two women really were outstanding. They inspired me to continue with my pursuits in theater and performance. To that end about occupation, you know, I had to go do a little research. You know, it's interesting. I I am unsure, you know, this is, I won't say that it, you know, didn't exist, but, you know, according to the internet, (laughs) it appears that uh, Madeline Anderson is the, considered to be the first Black woman to produce and direct a televised documentary film, the first Black woman to produce and direct a syndicated TV series, and the first Black employee um, at New York-based public television station WNET. And I believe that Julie Dash is the first Black woman to uh, have directed a full-length film uh, for theatrical release with her iconic Daughters of the Dust. We know Daughters of the Dust because... uh, Many say it was the inspiration for Beyonce's Lemonade album. Come on, history. Yeah, so I thought it was interesting. You know, we would create kind of a wish for the time, a wish for Black ascension in, I guess, American culture. Mm -hmm. 
I think it's interesting too thinking about that um and that wish for ascension for black folk because the film opens at that scene outside of what was the name of that hall you said town hall town hall yes so it's a broadway theater the film opens outside of the town hall theater and we see black people dressed in evening gowns and suits um mixed in with this white crowd going to watch this jazz concert and that immediately thrusts thrusts us into this uh conversation of class and success and wealth um amongst black people in the period for me it was just beautiful to uh, you know to see whiteness and the pervasiveness of whiteness on the periphery mm-hmm. you know that was really beautiful um but for me that's where one of my critiques came in you know i do still and i understand the reason why it's not deep is because i understand what the film was intending to do but i was you know concerned and, and i'm always concerned i just think in in how we capture blackness in whatever period the ways in which you know um, the different classes within blackness american blackness did not engage mm-hmm. i think for me it, um the moments where they kind of exchanged information with each other or shared their experiences came in very tiny moments so that was you know sylvie saying that she didn't know how to use a lighter when he was lighting the cigarette on the staircase uh in the record shop and then him not knowing what a cotillion was so that was like an exchange of kind of culture or class for them (laughs) i think that's what that served and see these are the details right you know what i'm saying like these are the details that i'm talking about because if Robert is in conversation with Miles Davis because he is is credited to be the genius of the group. Why can't he find a simple saxophone job at Motown or or even in the West Village of New York? Like I was like, why did he have to go to the steel mill back in Detroit? Yeah. Like it just didn't that didn't make sense either. But once again, I was like, you don't care because the it performances. So what is it, what do you think it means to watch this film today? And I, ooh. ooh. For me, as a Gen Zer, as a 23-year-old young Black man, film for me gives me more understanding of Black life in the 60s, um, in the 50s, late 50s. Um, gives me more context to, you know, what my parents grew up in, um, the kind of arts culture and, you know, music that they were listening to in a way that I haven't really seen before. Um So I appreciate the film for that. You know, I'm glad you said that. You know, it makes me think of, you know, my 93-year-old cousin who moved to Harlem at the age of 17 Mm -hmm. um, in 1943, you know. And I am always asking her about what was Harlem like during the time. And, And in her home in the Upper West Side of Manhattan, in her home, there are photos, you know, there's her wedding photo with her husband, you know, who was a very successful songwriter. Um, and, you know, I see her wedding photos and she looks like this very sophisticated and and poised Black woman, you know. So I understand that that history is there. I understand that, that history is mine. And so I'm happy that, you know, uh, your generation gets to experience it and know other elements of their history, you know, because, you know, we were great. You know, we're not getting great. We're not getting too great. Yeah. We were great. 
you know, and even and we already know that even in um, the world of oppression and adversity, we can fashion ourselves, you know, to be beautiful and grand because it's already in yes. us. Yeah, um, I just think that this is a beautiful addition to the Black canon. Um, once again, you know, roses to you, director Eugene Ash for um, his amazing intervention in American film. And with that, y'all, this is performing black. <laughs> Y'all can catch us on IG if you want to you know engage with us and talk with us and tell us what films you're interested in seeing you can engage with us on IG and Twitter and Facebook um AT, you want to give your uh, online handle? Yes, y'all can find me on Instagram at artsy.allen a r t s y . a l l e n and you can find me on all social media platforms at, at the Shadesmith. You can also find this podcast on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. We appreciate you for listening. Please tell all your friends, your cousins, your mamas, your daddies, your coworkers, that boss that you can't stand. Your tell aunt. them to tell them to get on your, your ex. Uh oh, and you know you're gonna be calling right. them. So when you call them, tell them to come listen to Performing yes. Blacks. Y'all take care of yourselves. <laughs> Forming black, performing black.